Here we are now, with episode number 13 of our series, You Are the Chosen One. And we're up to Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. This is book six in the Chronicles of Harry Potter by J.K. Rowling. The Prime Minister, on his first day, this is the Muggle Prime Minister, the Prime Minister of our world, has nothing to do with the magic world, nothing to do with magic at all, really. On his first day in office, well, he's got his congratulations and well done for becoming Prime Minister, and then he sets down to work, and the first moment where he's in his Prime Minister's office alone, one of the paintings starts talking to him. And this is, this is hilarious, because we, we must just wonder. It, it's one of those jobs where us common folk, we wonder what, what is really going on behind the scenes. It's the sort of job where <laughs> you, you, you can sort of entertain the idea that, well, the Prime Minister on his first day goes back and, well, actually he finds out that it's aliens running the joint. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Obama. But here's the truth of it, and don't tell anyone. You're just a puppet. <laughs> so there's a whole... There's a whole... Uh, there's a whole literary category of these conspiracy theories or this idea of what what really is happening behind the scenes. And, and, you know, the other side of this is, well, Noam Chomsky brings out his political commentary and he says things like, well, capitalism is really the thing that drives economy and society, not politics, and politics is a front, and he has all these nuances and all these examples, and he talks about the war in Iraq and so on. But here, it's really cute. It's a really, it's a really heartfelt, charming scene where the the Muggle Prime Minister has this talking painting, and he can't believe it. He cannot believe it. And of course, the character in this talking painting explains to him, well, there's this other world full of wizards. And you don't need to know much about it. And I'll only contact you if it's really necessary, so you really don't need to you don't really need to worry about it at all. And it's no big deal, I'm just here to let you know. And well, the Prime Minister for a second there thinks he's going off his rocker, he's going off his nut. What's wrong with me? And he thinks, well, I better have this painting removed. And he looks into getting the maintenance department, come in and remove this painting. But as it turned out, that's a bit more difficult. And the poetic commentary here is, is just, it's gorgeous. It's so deep and it says so much. Because in so many ways... This is, well, well, look at the recurring pattern. Each book always starts with the same thing. Every book up until now has started with the same thing, the exact same thing, which is someone from the magic world interacting with someone from the non-magic world. And each time that happens, there is drama. And it happens in so many different ways. And this is just yet another way. And it's quite funny. It's quite a sort of light-hearted, because we like to think of the politicians as, oh, what's going on? Someone, something out of control is happening. Something I can't... Politicians, they're sort of more on the conservative side when it comes to, <laughs> when it comes to magic. So this character in the painting turns up again, but this time he's actually got to tell him that, well, there's some stuff going on in our world, because this evil Dark Lord has come back, and I can't really explain much, and 
It probably won't be too much of an issue, but things are going to happen. People might be disappearing. Buildings might be falling down unexplained. And so on. They sort of have their back and forth, and the Prime Minister says, well... Well, you're a wizard, right? So, so you've got magic, right? So, so, so can't you do a magic spell to, to, uh, you know, like, uh, come on, come on, come on, can you, yeah, get, get, get rid of the bad guys, get rid of the bad guys with the magic spell? Yes, yes, do that. Yes, yes, very good, good idea. Yes, yes, that'll fix it. And the wizard is sort of like, well, it's not that simple, because we are the good guys and we have magic, but there's also the bad guys and they have magic. Just in that one little moment, we see the complexity of two different worlds. And also the ignorance of the Prime Minister, of his inability to grasp this other world. Which is always the case. It's always the case when you're trying to reach another world through just a short explanation. And I think about this scene and I think, well, what, what's the equivalent for us? You're in your room alone. There's no one else around. And then someone starts talking to you. Well, I can imagine there's a lot of people in this day and age in that situation because of our, this is the age of technology. This is the age of information. So... People talking to you from another distance, from another time, and in many ways from another world, is actually possible. So, you can have someone say things to you which are completely out there from another world, literally. And they're completely outside your realm of your understanding. And there can be a lot of richness to that. There can be a lot of opening. But you're still somehow alone. You're still somehow unable to integrate that. There's a, there's a barrier between you and the rest of your life outside this one moment. Just like the Prime Minister is. Now, now, now think of what the Prime Minister's situation is. Now that he's got this talking painting. He can't exactly raise the alarm or then say, hey... Did you else, did you also see this painting talking? I need to tell you that there's a talking painting in my office. You think, you think he's going to say that? Do you think he's going to do that? Of course not. Because of course when someone else comes in, the painting's just going to be quiet. He's just going to play that trick of, no, I'm not here to talk to anyone else. And the Prime Minister's wondering, well, did the other Prime Ministers before me know about this? Were they in the same situation? Of course, they didn't say anything, and they wouldn't want to have said anything. But even that aside, even that aside, say it's more like the situation we're in, even just trying to explain, hey, I'm listening to this person, and I'm finding new things. My worldview is opening up. Try explaining that to your friends. An explanation is always only a watered-down Refined, well, not necessarily even refined. An explanation is a lesser of an actualized, realized truth. It's only a fragment. It's only an indication of an experience or a truth. So there's a lot in this one little scene. And it doesn't offer up an answer to the problem of what do you do if you have someone talking to you from another world. It doesn't say how you should act or what you should do. What's the next step? I imagine the Prime Minister is probably a little bit scared and he wishes he could forget about it. He's quite nervous to have a painting that might start talking. Whereas other people might have a different reaction. Us common folk, us non-politicians, well, we think differently to politicians. They're in a, they're in a different category to us. And I wouldn't, say, 
I wouldn't say they're necessarily better than us. We could say that... <laughs> well, some would say that the, the politicians are a lower class than us common folk. <laughs> but that aside, let's just say, you know, let's just have one example of you, you hear about this other world and you think, wow, that sounds very interesting. Ooh, I actually have a nerve for magic. I actually wish that painting would talk more often to me. And I wonder if there's a way that I could visit this world. Maybe I should ask the painting next time he comes to life. And that kind of inquisitive interest in magic simply does not exist in the polit politician type or certain types. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't try and... Let's, let's not bring politics. Let's, let's not degrade this conversation by talking about politics. Let's leave it out of it. Really, the, the scene of the muggle prime minister being visited by this painting, it could have been in, well, a, di a different scene or a different muggle. It could have been a normal muggle or it could have been someone working in some other job. But the reason it's the prime minister is because where we are in our plot is that the stakes are ramping up and the danger is becoming more and more heightened and it's really becoming bigger and bigger every, pa <clears throat> every page we turn. Pardon me. Which means that the, the consequences of what occurs in the magic world is now not only contained to the magic world, it's actually branching out into our muggle world which means that the worlds are colliding in a way which is very much more dramatic than just one person visiting another. Now there are actual things happening. Things like the fog coming over from the Dementors or buildings and disappearances and murders and these, these sorts of things. So... Moving along in our plot, Dumbledore takes Harry to visit this person. And it turns out this person is a former teacher at Hogwarts. And Dumbledore wants him to come back and teach again. This is Professor Slughorn, I believe his name is. And it's sort of this thing with Slughorn that he's proud of his students. And he's got this little mantelpiece where he's got photos of the successful students that he's taught. Almost like, oh, I'm such a good teacher because my students go on to such good things. And there's a living for him. There's a pride. There's a living through others for him. And Dumbledore's way of getting him to come back to Hogwarts is by saying, hey, look at this, look at this guy. This is Harry Potter, the famous Harry Potter. You'll get to teach him. You'll get to say that you taught Harry Potter if you come back. And there's a flip side to this, which is that the pride Slughorn has in the, in the students that became successful is also a guilt that he has in the student, one in particular, that turned evil. And that was none other than Tom Riddle, Lord Voldemort, the Dark Lord himself. And Dumbledore's motive to wanting him to come back and befriend him and get Harry to make friends with him is that Dumbledore wants a certain memory. He wants certain information from Slughorn that only Slughorn has, but he's unwilling to give it up. So it's quite an elaborate approach. And we can say, well, is Dumbledore orchestrating things for his own gain? Is Dumbledore orchestrating things to manipulate someone or to trick someone into something? And we can say, no, not exactly. He is, he is orchestrating things. But he's doing it in quite a gentle way. And he's doing it for noble, a noble cause. He's actually, well, 
Dumbledore genuinely wants this Dark Lord to be, well, this darkness to be brought to an end. He wants something to happen with this character. So there are noble intentions behind it, and it is quite elaborate. And that says for us, well, some people are not just frank. And you have to understand that people have complexes within them that they themselves are not comfortable with. Because imagine this conversation. Dumbledore walks up to Slughorn and says, Hello, Slughorn, there's something that I've that I need from you. I need this memory. Can you give it to me? And Slughorn says, Well, yes, here it is. And that's the end of the story. And imagine a world where everyone felt like that. Imagine a world where everyone was comfortable with their past. In the case of Slughorn, the students that he's taught that have grown up to do terrible things. And in our case, well, our regrets, our mistakes, the people that we've wronged, and all the things we'd rather not have everyone see or know about. And yet imagine a world where everyone was just okay with it and everyone understood it. And we could just be frank and, well, things would run very smoothly. We wouldn't have to have this elaborate plot of making friends with someone and sort of tricking them into coming back to school and then getting to know them and then asking in subtle ways and different ways. And I guess, well, what we can say about that is we just need a little bit more understanding of each other and a little bit more understanding of ourselves. So Harry and his friends end up by chance, I believe, or they're sort of, I think it's by chance, or they're spying on Malfoy. So Harry, Ron and Hermione are spying on Malfoy in the in the markets in one of the shops and it's one of those creepy shops that he's that they've been in before and they're using the invisibility cloak and they've got this ear extension thing which makes you hear things from a long way away i think it is in the movie i think that's what they do in the movie i'm not sure if it's the same in the book but they're listening to malfoy and they think oh he's up to something there's something going on with malfoy he's 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 a creepy guy and they're starting to suspect there really is something up with him because his whole demeanor has changed this year. There's something different about him. It's like he's become more dark and even more worried. And they hear him talking to this shopkeeper about certain objects and certain things. And it's a sort of back and forth, and Malfoy sort of is, is looking to buy something, but he's not sure about it, and he's asking questions about it, and then he says, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not going to get it. I'll, I'll just leave it. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll come back next time, or something like this. I don't remember the exact scene. And then he leaves. He leaves the shop, and then Hermione has an idea. And she says, I'll go in to the shop, and try and work out what it is that he was thinking to buy. And he sort of, she, she sort of goes in and her story is, uh, well, my friend is thinking of getting something and do you know what it is? And in that instant, the shopkeeper sees exactly what she's up to. And he just says, get out of here. You are not fooling anyone. And she scutters off with her tail between her legs and then she talks to Harry and Ron and they're sort of like what were you thinking that was a stupid idea that did not work at all and in this scene well you see that certain people do see straight through you whoever sees what's going on has the upper hand and in some situations 
Someone really does have the upper hand by a long shot. There was no way that that shopkeeper was going to turn around and say, oh, this, this person is your friend, is he? Like, like even saying that, like there's no way I can say that. Ah, yes, darling, your friend. Obviously, it's not about your friend, it's about something else. And I don't remember if that scene is entirely in the movie. I think this is more just in the book. These are details that are only in the book. And as we get deeper into these narratives, there are a lot more things that are overlooked by the movies. Because the stories, the books are so rich with these little interactions and these little things which the movies, they just can't cover. They simply can't. So the other thing that's happening a lot in this part of the narrative is this whole thing with Snape. And we're starting to suspect, is Snape a bad guy? And this becomes more and more confusing because there's more and more evidence to both sides as the plot unfolds. And Harry and his friends work out, well, there's some sort of unforgivable, un- unbreakable curse that's made between Malf- uh, Malfoy and Snape, or something to do with Malfoy. They don't know what it is. And it's very funny when, <laughs> when Harry says, well, what's an unbreakable curse? And Ron says, well, it's a curse that you... Uh, what, uh, is it a curse or, or a bond? I can't remember. What what's an unbreakable bond? And he says, "Well, it's a bond that you can't break." And it's very funny in one sense, but also very serious on the other hand. And we have these scenes where Snape is talking with certain people on one side, and then he's also talking with people on the other side, and this continues for the next quite a while through the narrative it sort of goes back and forth and Harry and his friends you know hear uh, overhear certain parts of Snape's conversations or interactions you know there's an interaction between Snape and Malfoy and Snape is saying I can help you and so on and this character this character becomes more and more elusive because of how well he can talk to both sides. And we see it with just enough information to suspect or even to, to have doubt, which, which is a, a continuous doubt. It's an, an, an ever-rolling doubt. Now, normally when we have people interact with us, we, we like to have them in their place. We, want, we like to understand them. We like to understand where they're going, what they do, how they feel, what sort of person they are. And we basically build up on face value what someone is. And then they basically live like that. And they never really do something out of character. And they talk to certain people this way and they talk to certain people that way. But the thing is that we only ever see people in specific contexts. And you can notice this almost with anyone, that if you ever see someone in a different context, you'll see them talking very differently. And then you can sort of have your realization, well, of course he talks differently to his family as he does to you, or to his friends as he does to other people, and so on. And usually when you're getting to know someone, this is a very small increment. It's a little step. It's an opening of your perspective that does very small steps along the way. And when there's drama, well, when you find something out about someone, then it can be shocking. Or when someone does something really out of character, you can say, whoa, so this is the real you. Or, whoa, I never knew you had this in you. 
and in the case of Snape, well, it's a matter of good and evil. And it's really polarised with Snape. Because he's either really, really evil, and he's causing a lot of harm and pain and darkness, and he's infiltrated the good side, and he should be really brought to justice, and it's just terrible what he's doing, or he really is a good guy, and he's infiltrated the bad side, and he is going to be the saviour in many ways, because he's bringing valuable information, he's doing valuable tasks, he's playing out valuable parts in the orchestration of how things could turn out for the better, the plan. And this whole thing of one side planning and the other side planning and then they have different ideas of each other and different plans of each other, well, this is the complexity of the novel. This is the complexity of the story. And it's not as simple as, well, Snape is getting information and then feeding it to the good side or getting information from the bad side and then feeding it to the good side. And you can notice this. Well, there's a way that this is noticed in with someone who understands multiple perspectives, which is what Snape's doing. He's successfully navigating two worlds both at once. When, when someone does this, the people that can only navigate one world successfully always think of this other person as a traitor. They always think of this person as somehow insincere. Because if you think about it, if someone's, say someone's on the dark side and they really just want to be a baddie, then they're trying to work out what can they do to you know, suck up to Lord Voldemort and get into his inner circle and really have it play to their advantage to be evil. And, that, and then working out how to do that and working out the power dynamics and who, he, who, who this person can or cannot overpower and so on is, is one world. It's one web of complexities. And then there's the same on the other side, which is very different. It's a totally different world. There's not a power struggle on the good side. It's not like everyone's fighting over who's the boss or who's more dominant than another. Not at all. But Snape is so complex that he can see both sides, navigate both sides, and also have them working, and, 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 and also have like a, a third amalgamation of the two. He's a meta-navigator. It's meta-navigation. And we have this with our psychology. This is, this is, sec- this is a second-tier perspective. We call it second-tier thinking in spiral dynamics or in developmental psychology. We call it integral thinking in the Gene Gebser-Ken Wilber model. And this is where you're, when you're in one perspective, you're successful. And I, mean, I don't mean successful as in you make a lot of money. I mean you're, you're navigating the space, which means you're saying the right things. You're doing the right actions. You look as though you fit in you fit in perfectly. You're just right for the job. And yet somehow at another time of day you're in a totally different space and you also fit in well. And This is a motive which is particular to Snape, and it's very important that we understand this about Snape, because the book that we're in right now is the Half-Blood Prince, and we know that Snape is the Half-Blood Prince. And this, well, this means exactly what it is, two worlds being navigated. He's half-prince, half-something else. And you see, well, Snape has these great abilities, these extraordinary abilities, and there's always this thing that he wanted to be the, he wants to be the 
what do you call it, the headmaster of Hogwarts. He wants to be the boss. And that's like the royalty side. On the prince side, there's the royalty, which is his power, his influence over other people, his knowledge, his secret understandings of things, or his top secret information. The prince, the royalty, they always get the top information about what's happening throughout the world, throughout the land. And the prince always has people serving them. The prince has a lot of support. The prince has, well, anything they really want. And the prince is, in a sense, a a higher human being. Royalty is a higher human being. But if you're just that, if you're just royalty, then you miss something. You miss the other side of the, the, of the other perspective or the other side of the equation, which Snape has. This is why he's the half-blood prince. And the other side is, well, non-royalty. And this is a motive that's actually in the, the series a couple of times in a, different, in a, in a couple of different ways. Because you've got Hagrid, well, he's, what is he? He's half giant, half wizard, half something like that. He's half, half. And then you've got the centaurs, which are half half man, half horse. And then who else is there? You've also got half bloods. Me mum's a witch, me dad's a muggle, this sort of thing. And McGonagall, what is she? Well, she's a cat and she's a wizard she can turn from a wizard to a cat and then there's the werewolf so what's the werewolf lupin he's a werewolf he's half werewolf half man and then there's another character tonks she's a changelum so she's she's a sort of lesser character to the main plot but she's she fits this category because she can either be what she is or something else and that something else is actually not just one other thing but it's actually a multitude of things. So she's either changing into these different morphings or she is what she is. And that's a duality which is complex because one side is, is quite vast, has quite a, quite a wide variety. And I'm sure there's more. I'm sure this goes on. I'm just trying to think of, I'm just trying to think for myself what they are. And it's, it's sort of a theme among Hogwarts teachers. Like, I wonder, if we just look at each Hogwarts teacher, you know, well, well, Slughorn, he's got this duality of the pride in the students that he's taught and this shame in the, or this guilt in the students that he's taught that has, hasn't done well. So that's a kind of half-half. That's, that's a bit of a stretch from where Snape is at. That's quite a different thing. It's quite a different... I don't know if that falls into the ca- the category of the half-blood motive. But I think there's there's this thing of the the Hogwarts teachers they're sort of outcasts because they're different. They've been taken in also sort of like the divination teacher who's sort of she is good at what she does but also not very good at what she does. Because on the one hand, she's not very good. On the other hand, she made the you know the prophecy, the actual very prophecy about Harry Potter. And she did make predictions about Harry Potter that came true. So, yeah, I think that, like, what do all Hogwarts teachers have in common? What do they all have in common? Is it that they're all half something, half something else? And because of that, they're in one way shunned by the common folk or push out, pushed out by the common folk. And in another way, they have a, a brilliant ability, brilliant skills, deeper skills, which are beyond those common folk. So if the common folk can only see the one world that they're in, which in, in some cases might just be the magic world, then that's nowhere near as, I, I, I want to say powerful, but that's not the right word. It's not power. It's 
and it's not even skill. It's really like like what's the word for the the fruits of a deeper perspective or a bigger perspective of reality? I don't know if there is a word for it. I mean, here here we get into mystical realms. We get into things like 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 the vision of reality. Like you have a deeper vision of reality. And I want to say things like that that are poetic, like uh, bliss or internal wealth or inner world riches or exper- phenomenological riches or experiential. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. There's uh, I feel like we're on slippery slopes with this one. Not not because it's unfounded, but because it's 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 the edge of where well we're we're approaching the edge of where words leave off. This really is the the precipice. And if we can explain it in a character like Snape, then we can say, well, he's he's good on the one hand, and he's also evil on the other, and he's got royalty on one hand, and then he's got something else on the other. So there's this duality, but he's also successful with he's he's navigating those dualities well. So he's rich with his perspectives, and yet he's also integrating them. He's also amalgamating them. And then the other thing about Snape is, and this is a characteristic of these people that have multiple perspectives within them, is that we get this sense that there's a very big difference between what Snape really is and how he looks to everyone else. And that's just one way of really looking at this. That's one way of looking at the character. Because we can say that Snape's interior world is very different to how he looks. And that might be a little bit more accurate than saying, well, what is he? Because what is he? If we say, what is a person? Well, a person is everything that they are if that's not too much of a tautology. A person is everything that they do, think, feel, act, say, experience, see, and so on. So Snape is the half-blood prince. And if we look at our main character, well, the same motive applies. Because Harry has darkness in him, and he also has the light. And he's also the hero of the story, and he's also the victim of the story. We can say, who's the, who's the worst victim? Who had it worst? And it's the people that, you notice this, the people that had it worst from Voldemort are the heroes which is Harry and Neville. Neville had his parents tortured. And Harry had all sorts of, well, this is the story. This is how the story goes. So it's a deep motive that's all throughout this thing. So the next thing we'll cover in our plot or the next thing we'll talk about is the character of Malfroy and it comes out that actually Malfroy gets the tattoo which is the Death Eater's tattoo and Harry and his friends are thinking well now Harry's now now Malfroy's become a Death Eater So he's actually acquainted with the Dark Lord. And as the plot continues, as the story unfolds, these things keep showing up at Dumbledore's office or in his post office box or wherever, which are cursed. And as it happens, they don't actually reach Dumbledore. They get misplaced and the curses go to other people. 
They end up in the wrong hands or in the wrong place. And even Harry's friend, Ron, gets one of them. And this is put together to mean by Harry and his friends that someone's trying to kill Dumbledore and it's Malfoy. And in a sense, they're right. They're actually right about their hypothesis. But they really have no evidence for it. They really just have their extravagant imaginations to go off it. And Malfoy, well, he's quite stressed out about this. He's looking pretty bad. He's looking pretty sick. He's looking pretty worried. He's more than just he's more than just bitter these days. He's more than just a bully. He's actually being worn down by this. And you notice what he says. He says this. He says, "He chose me." I have been chosen to do this. And this ties in with our central thesis, which is that you are the chosen one. And in this case, Malfroy is the chosen one. And what's he chosen to do? He's chosen to do a seemingly impossible and terribly just, just tragic thing. And if you really ask, if you really ask Malfroy, how do you feel about your headmaster? How do you feel about killing this man? How do you feel about killing Dumbledore? Well, you can see that Malfroy is really in, the ro- in between a rock and a hard place. Because for him to say, I don't want to kill him, means that he's going up against his whole upbringing, his whole conditioning, his family, and this figure, this power figure, which has singled him out. And this really is powerful. If you, There's so many roles that we can give young people. And young people do have these figures which have a lot of power over them just in the way of the mentor dynamic or the teacher dynamic it's just natural there's people that have younger people have people that they look up to and some people really have that quite deeply and yet don't find someone positive to look up to you can say that someone's found you found the wrong person to look up to and you could never say that to Malfroy you could never sit him down and say this is bad You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be associating with this person. Because he doesn't have a choice, you see. His his perspective doesn't allow him to see. In the case of a young person, the young person is not walking around saying, oh, I need a mentor, so show me who I can choose from. I've got Dumbledore or Voldemort or Professor McGonagall or the cat. Now, which one am I going to choose? Yes, it's very important that I find someone to look up to and I choose... I choose, I choose Voldemort. Yes, ah, wonderful. Now I've got someone to look up to. Now I've got a mentor. That's that psychological need ticked so I can tick it off my box and then go along to my other psychological needs. That's not how it works at all. Because Malfroy's been brought up in his culture and his father has been telling him about the purity of race, the purity of blood. His father himself is a death eater. The father's been talking to him and even scolding him. How could you do this? How could you not be as smart as the filthy mudblood, Hermione Granger? So Malfoy's been very unloved. And he's learnt from his father... That the person that scolds you is the person you need your love from. It's the person you need your approval from. And the way you get that is by doing what they say. And when Voldemort comes along, well, he's even more scolding. He's even more powerful. And he gives him an even more difficult thing to pull off. 
And in so many ways, Malfroy's conditioning has wired him to believe that this must be the thing that he needs to get approval. Because there's a part, and this part in Malfroy is like, well, well, think of this part of him. He's thinking, well, if I actually pull this off, I will be in Voldemort's good books. There's, there's an incentive, there's a, there's a deep psychological incentive that is entwined into all parts of his identity and, his, and the role that he plays and the sort of person he is, the young man that he's becoming. And imagine if he pulls it off. And you could never point out, well, actually, Malfoy, you feel miserable about this. Because he'd be thinking one thing and feeling another. And what he thinks would not be exactly how things really turn out. So in this book... Malfoy is the chosen one. And he's chosen by the wrong person to do the wrong thing. And deep, deep, deep down in Malfoy, he knows that it's wrong. And yet his conditioning, his family upbringing, his culture, his society, his circle of friends... They've all failed him. They've all led him to this place. And it's so complex that he can't even see that, well, maybe actually Snape is trying to help him. Maybe Snape can help him. And in a very subtle way, Snape is the only one that can help him. So, I think we'll wrap it up now. We might only do we might only do two episodes on the Half-Blood Prince. It depends how long I go on the rest of this. I mean, there's still so much more in this. There's a lot more in this book. But we might we might leave more... I might do more on the Deathly Hallows. More time there, because that's a very dense book. The, the, the books just become more and more dense towards the end, so... However, however the pacing goes, we'll know soon enough. But for now, let's just finish up with a few minutes of silence. So just sit quietly with your eyes closed for a few minutes. And that's all I have to say for now. <laughs> 